Hello and welcome to the Car Stories Podcast. My name is Kyle Hyatt and I'm here as always with my host, James McKeon. The man, the myth, the legend. Uh, and we are lucky enough today to have Mr. John Bothwell, the commercial director for Persong US. Persong, of course, uh, manufactures exceedingly accurate replicas of uh, pre-war Bugattis and Alfa Romeos and other kinds of... Uh, Beautiful work they do. Oh, Beautiful. They're, they're fairly staggering. Yeah. They're good Incredible stuff. even, might say. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's good to have you. Great to be here. Yeah. So I guess jumping right into it, uh, can you give us kind of a, a, a breakdown of how Persang got started way down in Argentina? You know, it got started the way most things get started in Argentina, which is, you know, by accident. And uh, my 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 current business partner, then founder of the company, Jorge, was restoring a Bugatti and decided to just kind of start copying stuff because he wanted a car and knew that he would never be able to afford one in all likelihood and, uh, you know, built himself a toy. And then the, the business took off sort of, I guess, by accident, I guess, you know, in, in a lot of cases, when you have a good product, they sell themselves. And that certainly happened right off the bat. Yeah. I mean, well, the, so your, your replicas, they, they started at what around, 10 to 15% of what uh, like a genuine car might cost in, in today's that, market? That used to be the case. Uh, nowadays, I'd say it's quite a bit less, closer to 5% in okay. a lot of cases, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then if we just go back to, so when Jorge did the, had the first idea of just copying the Bugatti that he was restoring, did the owner of that Bugatti that he was restoring realize that Jorge was copying? Oh, yes. Yeah, it was a car that lived and still lives in Argentina. Okay. It was a restoration job, and there was transparency about that. So I think that it was sort of like, let me restore. I'll, I'll do a free restoration for you if I can make some tooling and patterns oh, okay. for the, the stuff when it's apart. So and and it was, which one was that that he started with? It was a Type 35B. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Certainly. That's fascinating. So, I mean, I guess the, the kind of elephant in the room when you're talking about a replica is that replicas, by and large, have a pretty terrible reputation mm-hmm. for being cobbled together out of what's lying around and not right. really representative of the original car, but that's mm. that's definitely not the case with with uh, the Persang cars. Yeah, exactly. You know, and our biggest obstacles knowing what to call these things because, as you just said, most replicas are, you know, in other words, not replicas. Mm-hmm. They're cars that are more like facsimiles. They're vague representations, maybe tributes. But um, when you're standing a hundred feet away, they kind of look like the real thing when you get up close it's well well okay so the, this has nothing actually in common with the real car so a replica in the true sense of the term would be a car that's identical to the original not one that's sort of loosely based on it but identical sure. and in that sense of the term what we build are replicas however because the word replica now has all of these bad connotations surrounding it um we've been creative in calling them other things like uh, tool room copy is, is an expression I sort of pulled out of the hat, uh, six or seven years ago. And it's, it's, I, I chuckled to myself because I see other people using it now hmm. or recreation, you know, or any sure. of these words that sort of stand apart from the stigma that, you know, cause you hear replica and you hear, you, you think like one of those awful SSK replicas from the seventies where you oh, bought a, yeah. a plastic body kit car and, and you make it in your garage yourself. Oh and, yeah. Or, you know, and, and then Volkswagen engine stuff. And yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of the cars today that are quality cars, um, Cobras and things like that, they're, they're actually very quality automobiles, these replicas, but are they exactly the way they were? No. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Uh, so, you know, it, it, touching on the replica stuff again, you guys, you guys make pretty much everything yourselves like you're mm-hmm. casting engine blocks you're you know hand beating body panels i mm-hmm. think for a while you guys are making your own tires like still do still do okay fantastic yeah what we do is we make all of our own tires and that gets the car exported because mm-hmm. we can't import tires okay and then once the cars are shipped um we put on the coker excelsior h comp tires right. we use those on all of our pre-war cars now okay uh finest quality tire that you can get and quirky coker has really done a good job of developing that line so it's faithful as far as it's designed to the original but it's got an h comp speed rating on the actual rubber compound oh wow which is nice handy mm-hmm. for driving yeah because i mean it, it sure it was made in the 1920s or 30s but the, the type 35 is not a slow car it's not a slow it's not car, a slow car by any stretch and there's of the nothing that's safe about it so yeah. when you're driving a beer can <laughs> at 100 miles an hour you want your tires to hold up right exactly exactly <laughs> so yeah, so I guess the 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 nature of the import export laws in Argentina is kind of what encourage you guys to do everything yourselves. I mean, what is how how do you go about like I guess how how do you, how do you go about like the you know checking all the accuracy for things? How how's the quality control for something like that work? Because the volume has to be I would imagine tiny. Mm. Um yeah, look, we make between 20 and 30 cars a year, which in this type of industry is huge. That's It's small volume for an OEM manufacturer, mm-hmm. which we are not, but it's huge volume for sort of a cottage industry one-off thing. Other people that do what we do do it on such a different scale. I mean, maybe a car every couple of years. Sure. So doing over 20 cars a year is huge. We have 100 guys, over 100 guys full-time, which makes that possible. And so within that, you know, having... Uh, a staff that large we can afford to have uh, an entire department dedicated to engineering Um, we have an entire department dedicated to pattern making we have uh, two full-time test drivers so it's a it's a staff that's very well thought out and designed so that even though we're doing 20 or 30 cars a year that they can each be accounted for and and a very high quality Mm -hmm. and that's important when you're making 20 or 30 cars a year that are being sure. introduced to the sure. world that are uh, not Model Ts, but actual Formula race cars. Yeah. Um, that's like your own bespoke like motor company, obviously. Sure. Yeah. Right. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is with the kinds of cars that we're building, there is obvious liability in terms of making sure that the quality stands up. So having built at this point close to 200 of these cars in the history of the company, um, it's very gratifying in, in 30 years to see that we've built all these race cars and that there hasn't been a single issue of any kind as far as quality. So to, oh, wow. to speak to your question about quality control, it is something that is given a lot of attention and that, and that we're proud of in that regard. Sure. sure. And in those 30 years, how many cars would you say that you guys have produced? Mm, uh, close to 200. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, the the biggest seller in the car we started with was the Type 35 Bugatti. Mm-hmm. And that still is the bread and butter of the company. And the Bugatti line is expanded from there to go um, to encompass basically all of the Grand Prix cars as well as a few of the sports roadsters. And then um, we get into the Italian cars, some of the German cars and other things. And so today we're making 23 different models that we're regularly wow. tooled up for. But... Um, the biggest seller is still the Type 35. Okay. 
Okay. Sure. But then of those 23, which ones, is there any particular favorites that stand out for you? I'd have to say the Type 35. That's that's the only car of ours that I, I own personally. Okay. Um, there are a lot of cars that are awesome historically. If you look at, say, a Monza or if you look at an SSK Grand Prix car, um, you know, they're, they're amazing cars. But would I want to drive one of those every weekend? God, no. Yeah. Like, I mean, they're... They're amazing. They're fun to race. The people that buy a Monza are the people that do vintage racing and they have three or four races a year and that's what they use it for. But being a weekend warrior, the car that is the most versatile for just regular use that's that's pretty painless from a maintenance standpoint, definitely the Bugatti. Okay. Hmm. So I guess that kind of that, that sort of segues into the fact that you know, at, uh, there's a number of videos now. I mean, you recently did one with Matt Farah uh, of the smoking tire driving uh, the Type 35 mm. uh, that was recently done, uh, driven in the Great Race. I mean, it did what four thousand miles in that. Forty two hundred. Well, we did from San Francisco area to Northern California for, uh, to uh, Moline, Illinois was a little over three thousand. Wow. Or I think it was a little under. I'm sorry, it was like twenty eight hundred. And from there, we pushed on just on our own, independent mm-hmm. of the event, to New York. And so total, it was forty two hundred. It's incredible. <laughs> so I guess what I'm what I'm kind of getting at is is that a car like the Alpha 8C that you guys build, the Monza, mm-hmm. uh, like that's that's its own sort of unique thing, and there's not a lot of parallels with a modern car. But the Type 35, I guess, in particular, is is see, everybody that drives it seems to be really surprised by how like modern it is, mm. how it has like a, a normal pedal layout, and you know, like a, a gearbox that just sort of works and brakes mm. that are not terrifying and that kind of thing can right. can you kind of elaborate on on that like how well it's a very modern car relative to the other cars that were around in the 20s so personally really liking pre-war cars and especially horseless carriages when you get into a bugatti you're like wow this is a spaceship because it's got a clutch and it's got things that work and it's it's a car that you can fly in and it stops really well one of the the most frequent questions that I get is whether we have modified the design of the car mm-hmm. to account for how well our cars drive. And the answer is no, it is stock design through and through. Uh, that's just how far ahead of his time a Tory was back in the twenties. Sure. Though you do offer some small modifications that wouldn't necessarily be out of place in period right. to make them a little bit more potent or a little bit more, Sure. Like, the the thing with those that's important to to always mention to people, especially when people are buying a car, is that they're not performance enhancements. So they don't sure. change how the car drives or handles or the horsepower or anything else. They're they're merely for maintenance considerations. So okay. having uh, a plane bearing crank upgrade option. Sure. So you're not re- rebuilding your engine every five thousand miles. Right. Whatever. With the roller bearing crank or. Uh, having a modified firing order mm-hmm. upgrade option so that it's an actual conventional straight eight firing order, the same firing order that Atori himself used in later years of making Bugattis. So okay. things like that do nothing to your horsepower output. They do nothing to how the car handles or performs, but they do do a lot as far as saving you money on maintenance cycles. Sure. sure. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess uh, talking about Matt Farah and the, and the smoking tire, you uh, did a pretty serious road trip with those guys. Mm. Uh, was it last year? Mm-hmm. Uh, you mean the one in the Ford? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah last Model June. T, right? <laughs> yeah. 1923 Model T. Wow. 
That's uh, talk about not being having any parallels to a modern car. Everything about that car is weird. <laughs> yeah, it like, is. Uh, tell us about that trip a little bit. I mean, what was it like to to go? I mean, it was a lot of it was off road, correct? Most of it, I'd say, over ninety percent of it. Wow. And that car is perfectly suited to going off road. It is. That's why I wanted to do this. Yeah. This began because Matt and his guys were down doing a shoot for Drive, and we were shooting the Monza, mm-hmm. and. <clears throat> We did a little bit of driving in the Model T that day as well, but the Model T was kind of in the background. It was sitting there, and he was packing up, and we were joking around. And and he said, hey, we're making a movie next month. We're doing this crazy off-road thing. Why don't you bring that thing? <laughs> and I said, okay. I looked at, at Joe, my mechanic, who was next to me, and we kind of looked at each other and nodded at each other. And I said, okay, sure thing, Matt. All right. And uh, the next day I texted him. I said, so send me the details about the about the road trip for the movie. And he said, he came back and he said, well, you're not serious, are you? He said, I, I was just joking. And we, we kind of kicked it back and forth a few times, and I kept calling his bluff. I said, hey, unless you tell me I can't come, I'm coming. And so we, we met in Scottsdale. And we did, I don't know, 850 miles or something. And it was through the backcountry discovery route that okay. are all the, the, the roads that have been mapped out by the, the dirt bike guys. Okay. So we got a hold of those maps. Uh, Mac got a brand new F-150 from Ford as a press car. And then, and then his guys bought a couple of other cars just off of Craigslist that were just real junkers. But yeah. the Model T, you know, if you've seen the movie, All Cars Go to Heaven 2, mm-hmm. is really surprising to everybody because it outperformed even the brand new F-150. They got a flat tire, I think, once a day. They got stuck in mud routinely. And the Model T, we never had air to the tires. We never got a flat. We never got stuck. So that was really gratifying. But the thing about that experience and that that adventure that's really impressive is the fact that that's a car, a 1923 car, and it's never been restored. Oh, wow. It's an unrestored car. I'm the second owner of it. And we brought it out of mothballs basically for this trip. It had been sitting for 30 years, not running. That's incredible. And, um, you know, it's, it's, everything's original about it. And there, and there you have it. So. And after those 30 years, it just turned right over? Uh, yeah. You know, we, we replaced some of the wires in it. We put a new battery in it, changed the oil, but we didn't do anything substantial as sure. far as having to, to fix or replace or repair anything else. It's incredible. <laughs> I feel yeah, I feel like with the with the weird like pedal layout and the hand throttles and all that stuff that like do trying to drive that off road or up up some kind of steep incline would have been oh, it was, harrowing it was, at best. Yeah. yeah. No, it was very it was very difficult. There's no <laughs> the car did well, but it was not an easy thing to drive. So like the first night I, I, I lay awake. I laid awake the entire night. I couldn't sleep because there was just so much adrenaline in my body from, from what I did <laughs> that first day. Nice. Um, so what do you, uh, what you, you, obviously you said you have uh, a type 35 of your own, mm-hmm. um, which is undeniably cool. Uh, what is, uh, what's your daily driver? It changes. Sure. Um, it's a model T it's a different model T mm-hmm. a 22 pickup right now. Okay. A couple of weeks ago it was a, an AC Asica. Oh wow. Um, it, yeah, it kind of, it kind of alternates around. So but nice. um, I, I I like the Model T as a daily driver setup. Yeah. It's just the Model T is a, a very versatile car. I can mm-hmm. do a lot with it, and uh, I like my little pickup truck. So nice. We I mean, went got to, unlimited space in a pickup truck. Well, yeah, that's that's just it. We went to Costco on Sunday in the pickup truck, nice. and it was like I have never looked forward to going to Costco more than I did on Sunday because we just <laughs> loaded up that thing, stack it up. Look, yeah. unlimited space. Right. Next challenge, IKEA. It's coming. The thing about Model T's that's cool from the standpoint of a car guy is that 
it is the car that gave birth to the hot rod culture in this country. A lot mm-hmm. of people only think back as far as muscle cars or maybe a Model A, but the Model T was the first car that it was just good enough that it was really popular, it was affordable, and everybody bought them. I mean, they made like 15 million of them. Sure. But it was wanting in so many areas that you had all these aftermarket parts companies that sprung up in period. I mean, the, the, the aftermarket's Model T business was worth like over $100 million by 1925. Wow. And the, the result of that was that you saw all kinds of cool cars being built. And to this day, you can find those accessories. So like with my pickup truck, I bought this thing for cheap and I bought a bunch of original period available accessories. And now I have a car that stock had 20 horsepower and could do 35 miles an hour that can do 55 miles an hour. And that has 45 horsepower Mm -hmm. and that has brakes and has proper cooling and all kinds. So it's, it's a car that can be a daily driver Sure, and you know, it's using stuff that was available back then. I think that's really neat because that's a very American thing is to modify cars, to get your muscle car, to make it faster, to make it stronger, whatever. But definitely they were doing it back then too, which is, which is neat. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can only imagine that, that trying to daily drive, I mean, especially in like Southern California traffic, that daily driving a model T or anything like a model T that requires that much attention it's just, it's got to be exhausting. Like, well, uh, there, to, to be fair, there isn't much traffic where I live. Okay. I, I wouldn't drive the Model T in like LA traffic, but you know, my, my shop is a couple miles from my house. So okay. when we're talking about daily driving here, it's, it's a not like a proposition. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not going from like Beverly Hills to Van Nuys or something. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a bit of a, bit of a, bit of a, a bit more. The adrenaline would probably be pumping again after yeah. that drive. Right. Yeah. I'd say it'd be really popular in the uh, Sepulveda Pass there. Yeah. Mm. Uh, um, it at least let some, hopefully let someone let you in though. With that such a unique car, you know, mm. the American tradition. That's true. That's true. I mean, or everybody would have already passed you, and the yeah. thing would just be empty by empty. that point. Maybe yeah. <laughs> just make an appointment to get on the freeway, and you know, uh, yeah. So, I guess getting getting back to the the, the Persong stuff, um, what are are there any other plans for um, different models to to start manufacture of, or you guys have kind of pretty much settled on these are the twenty three different models that we feel like that that need to be built. And and that's plenty of choice for everybody, or is there? Yeah, on one hand, we've more or less covered the the best options of mm-hmm. pre war Grand Prix starting grids. We've got it all covered, you know, from the Italians to the Germans to the French. So um, that being said, we've only ever introduced new cars upon request. So okay. if somebody okay. comes to us and they say, "I want this car, and I'll pay for you guys to build it." Well, now we've just added a new car to the line. So sure. theoretically, that could still happen. The most recent example of that was a 328 BMW. Okay. Um, anything is possible. And, and, you know, with the popularity of the company growing, in all likelihood, that will happen. But at the same time, we've already got, I think, the, the biggest hits, let's say, of pre-war cars covered. And pre-war cars, incidentally, really are our specialty. Yeah. Because you get into post-war cars and you're dealing with, you know, closed coach work and sure. these complicated mm-hmm. interiors and there's just in the simplicity of the pre-war car um there's simplicity but there's also complexity but we've just been able to zero in on doing all that stuff really well so we don't want to go too far from from what we're good at mm-hmm. so when you talked about the bmw 328 how did that come about that someone said would you uh, be able to make this and then what's the steps for you guys to go through that process of being able to take it from the mm-hmm. customer coming in saying this is what we'd like to do and then 
to actually delivering that finished car. That car actually came to us as a restoration project. Okay. And the guy had a pallet with a bunch of parts that he thought would be usable. Okay. So there was parts of a chassis and there was an engine block. It turned out that virtually everything he sent us was rotten beyond recovery. <laughs> so we ended up just copying what he had sent us. Sure. And we gave him his stuff back. We were able to reuse the block. Okay. And so it's got an original block in it. But other than that, we copied everything else. And... um you know, when when we build cars, and I, I think typically coach work is where your question would normally be directed because that's the most complex thing. It's one thing to get drawings for engines and other mm-hmm. mechanical components. Sure, and you can make the specifications, I assume. Exactly, but um, coach work is a little less scientific and more artistic. Mm-hmm. And so we have a designer who works with an artist. We make a prototyping grid that's an actual physical wire grid that's one-to-one. And while we use SolidWorks and CAD programs for for machined components that come out of the machine shop, when it comes to the body building, we do it all the old-fashioned way of prototyping with the wire grid. So we, we get that, we get the sense of scale down, and then build the bucks, and then panels are formed accordingly. But the designer who first put the sketch to paper that led to the wire frame grid is the same guy who's working alongside the panel beaters until it's done. Okay. So it's sort of the the same set of eyes that got the proportions down from the beginning has to sort of follow it through. Unlike machine work where you put it in a program, you put it in a print and it's just math. Okay. Certainly. All right. So what has been the, uh, the response from sort of the classic car community to the, the person cars? I mean, somebody that owns what's somebody's that, that, that actually owns a type 35, you know, what is their take on what you guys do? Well, I can tell you that in the United States, the majority of our clientele own the original cars that we're replicating. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the response is pretty favorable. In Europe, our clients include members of the Bugatti family. Oh, wow. Um, I think that when, you know, we, we have to go back to like this idea of what the definition of a replica is. Typically with replicas, you think about a lot of things in terms of quality, but you also think that the people who are buying these cars are buying them because they can't afford them. In the case of what we're doing, what I would contend is a true replica, Sure. the reason people are buying them isn't because they can't afford the real thing. Because, I mean, let's face it, the cheapest car that we offer is still more expensive than a new Rolls Royce. Yeah. So um, there are different considerations. So mm-hmm. most of the people who are buying our cars have the original of the car they're buying or they have other original cars. But the point being the community of collectors mm-hmm. who have the blue chip stuff, these people love what we're doing. And so our marketing focus is sort of from a, a top down basis. The okay. guys who, the, I mean, there are people who can't afford the cars who are buying them from us who can't afford a $7 million car. Sure. But I think they're following the lead of the guy who has the original and still buying our stuff. Okay. Sure. And I'm assuming then that obviously if they have the original, they're buying one of yours. They could maybe keep the original for those special occasions mm-hmm. and then maybe use yours for a much more enjoyable experience and getting exactly. it to go that 100 miles an hour, which mm-hmm. you might not want to do in that $7 million original just as quiet as often. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's why they are doing it. And, you know, for a lot of people who don't own our cars, I've spoken with a, a lot of guys and I, I think that they're thrilled that this is bringing young blood into the hobby. Because if you go to a lot of these rallies with these pre-war car clubs, otherwise sure. it's a dwindling thing year to year. And now you see younger guys getting into it. So to answer your question across the board, there's a lot of enthusiasm about how this is reinvigorating 
the hobby in many ways. That's awesome. That's really good to hear, actually, because they, I mean, these are such incredible cars, and and the more opportunities that somebody, especially a younger person, has to see one or hear one or you know, that's that, that can only be a good thing. Mm. Have you ever? Do you think there'll ever be a chance when you have enough of your cars will be together at one point where you could maybe form a pre uh, grid? Well, cars? it's interesting you ask that because um, yesterday at our racetrack in Buenos Aires, there was a race held and we had nine Bugattis and two Alphas that were on the grid. Oh, wow. And they were all our cars. And those were just cars that belonged to clients in South America. As far as things stateside, you know, yeah, we're, we're actually working right now with uh, a number of organizations and race clubs uh, who, who are very interested in having our cars show up to historic events. So there are a number of events that are pending where we're going to have Persang cars racing. And uh, increasingly, that's why people are buying our cars is to participate in those races. Now, it's anybody's guess when it'll be only Persang. I'd always <laughs> like to see the original cars Spec out there. Sure. Just wait. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's definitely happening. And vintage racing is something that uh, is ideal for what we do because most of the cars we build are race cars after all of course of course and then of those uh, your customers that you have are you find is it mostly south america or north america or europe where people are buying these cars from is there any specific areas now where you're sending more of your cars to uh it's pretty spread out south okay. america is not one of our big focuses okay. um we're in 22 countries um all of the americas europe eastern europe middle east china india south africa australia um, so I, if I, I'd say the market that's growing the fastest is probably the United States, okay. but you know, the, the, this is not where we have the most cars either, but I, I think that the fastest growth is happening here. Sure. sure. So we, you know, we have, uh, our art of the Bugatti's, uh, exhibit opening up on the 23rd, which should be pretty cool. Hmm. Um, and you know, we have. Uh, we have stuff like we have, we're going to have a Chiron and a, obviously a Veyron and uh, we're going to have a, a Royale, which is pretty exciting. I've never seen a Royale in person. Wow. Where's that coming from? I have no idea. I have no idea. Not too many of those around. No, no. Um, but uh, sort of using that to segue, like uh, what are some some different uh, Bugatti models that, that you've that you would like to see replicated? I guess that haven't been done yet. I mean, what what? what would excite you to to kind of see like uh, you guys recreate it sure the only one that we haven't done is the type 59 the only one that that i i really like and that we haven't done that okay. is, is the type 59 we haven't done it because it is uh nothing at all like the other grand prix cars mm -hmm. mechanically which means that you have to do everything much differently as far as construction and everything is much more complicated than the other Grand Prix cars. So it's a car that becomes a very, very expensive proposition for the buyer. Sure. I've gotten close with the number of prospective buyers. And then when you get down to the numbers, they're like, well, wait a minute, it's going to cost me four or five times as much as a type 35 to have this other one. And they look virtually the same. Mm -hmm. So most guys at that point just end up buying the type 35, but it's an amazing car. I'd love to see it done. It's very historic. Mm -hmm. It's got a lot of potential as far as driving. It's just a monster. So that 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 is one that I hope one day we still do. Okay. Um, do you guys do any of the the smaller the four cylinder Grand Prix cars as well, or is it predominantly just the straight eight stuff? Yes, we do the Type Thirty Seven and the Type Thirty Seven A. So okay. both supercharged and naturally aspirated. And those are on the same chassis as the Type Thirty Five and okay. Type Fifty One. Um, as far as four cylinder goes, we also do the Type Thirteen Brescia, which okay. was really a Tori's first um, 
successful race car. Awesome. That's very exciting. Um, I guess uh, kind of transitioning a little bit, your uh, your family has a pretty long uh, history with automobiles. Pretty. Can, can you elaborate on that a little? Or uh, Yeah, sure. You know, my, my great uncle, Lindley Bothwell, started collecting cars, um, gosh, in the late 20s. And um, he was initially buying horseless carriages. And I have a picture of Lindley and my grandfather, Doug, sitting on a 1902 curved ash Oldsmobile, which was the first car that, that Lindley bought and they brought it home from the dump. And, um, <laughs> my, my great grandfather, Sam yelled at them both and said, you know, this is a waste of money. They spent $60 on the curved ash back in the 1920s, late twenties. Right. So, um, Lindley incidentally was the first owner of my model T that I took on the road trip Oh, fantastic! with Matt Farah. And that was the first car he bought. He bought that new in 1923. That was his daily driver. And then he bought this curved dash olds around 27, 28. And, um, anyway, when, when Sam yelled at both of them, uh, for this stupid waste of money, um, yeah, you think about it. A new model T back then was around $300 mm-hmm. and they spent $60 on an obsolete car that they found in a dump. Mm-hmm. Granted that car today is worth about 40 grand, sure. but, um, they brought this thing home, they got in trouble, and that's what really galvanized, I think, the car collecting impulse. Because <laughs> Anytime anyone gets in trouble, it's always a sign of, I must be doing something good with this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He kept buying horseless carriages that were just being thrown away, and then he started buying race cars that were being discarded, old Indy cars and Grand Prix cars. Oh, wow. And he amassed enough race cars at one point that by the 1940s he was hosting his own vintage races initially on Catalina Island and then out at the Pomona Fairgrounds on the oval horse track the dirt track wow and uh that was the birth of vintage racing basically in this country so that's incredible number of the people who would be invited to drive um you know people whose names we'd recognize like um Steve Earle and Mm-hmm. Carol Shelby and you know you go down the litany of a lot of the the mm-hmm. the big names in California racing and vintage racing and they were all involved in those early races and then those in turn transformed into the the races at Pebble Beach on 17 mile drive back when they still held those sure so there's a lot of history on the west coast and I think indeed for the entire country as far as the the birth of vintage racing because of what Lindley did and um he passed away in 1986 and my great aunt Anne carried on the legacy of maintaining the collection and, um, involvement in vintage racing. She passed away just this month, oh, um, wow. a few, few weeks ago. I'm sorry, last month. Um, but you know, the, the, the collection has been in place basically since 1922 on the same property. And, um, you know, we're, we're very proud that the, the legacy that Lindley began is still intact and, and still has tribute paid to it. That's incredible. That's unbelievable. And, and just speaking about racing on Catalina, I can't even imagine like logistically how, <laughs> how you get the pain, cars out there. Yeah. How much of home. a pain that would have been, and especially now with the, the current climate towards cars on Catalina as sure. well. Like that, that's just a, well, the pictures stuff. are amazing. Yeah. They raced from point to point and okay. it was uh, all on dirt and very windy twisty roads uh mobile oil sponsored the event oh wow and had a couple of barges that went from long beach and took all the cars out and i think he took out a dozen cars or something like that that's got to be an incredible photo as well just barges loading them all up cars. Yeah. yeah pushing them out there yeah wow. so but you know they were a lot of these cars were dirt track cars mm-hmm. back in the day anyway so they mm-hmm. did really well and uh 
But yeah, very, very historic thing for those of us who know Catalina today. And you can't imagine a race ever being held there. Yeah. You can dream about it, but it'll surely never happen again. Yeah. I don't think it's ever going to happen. <laughs> no. Uh, so is, is the collection, I mean, is, is it ever, does it get out much or, or does it get displayed to the public ever? Or? Uh, it doesn't get a whole lot of public press as far as the, the, the collection where it stands, mm -hmm. you know, there are groups that see it from time to time. The fabulous fifties has a picnic there every summer. So okay. people who really are dying to see it should just join the fabulous fifties. But, um, cars, cars do get out. Um, you know, one of the, the cars, a couple of the cars you guys have here at the museum are, are old Bothwell cars, the big, um, Daimler limousine, the oh, yeah. King George the fifth. Yep. Um, that used to be a Bothwell car. That's a pretty incredible car. I, I, I saw that for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I don't know how I'd missed it before because it's huge. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's that's neat. I hope he wasn't paying car. for that in length and size. That's what I would say when he was buying yeah, it. Just, you maybe you get a bulk discount. Yeah. No. But um, other cars have been out as well. You know, um, in recent years, to Pebble Beach and to Goodwood. So fantastic. Um, so yeah, no, they they are getting exercise and exposure and all that good stuff and obviously the model t that started it all is still getting exercise and exposure well that's just it you know the the model t is um i think from the standpoint of our family history a really important car and having the original wood floorboards and the original upholstery and all that mm -hmm. it's uh it's special and you know he drove that car over eighty thousand miles in his lifetime so um I can think of no better thing to do with that car thinking of what Lindley did than to do something crazy like taking it off road for 800 miles. Sure. Because, um, you know, we all want to know what a model T can really do. Mm -hmm. We all see them in parades mm -hmm. and doing lame things like that, but <laughs> we all know that they were, they were built before we had paved roads in this country. Yeah. So what, what, what better tribute to a man like that than to really put it to the test in that way? Definitely. Next stop is uh, obviously King of the Hammers for the Model T. Gonna as that's what I was gonna yeah. say. What's the next thing? Plans for the Model T? <laughs> well, I'll I'll tell you exactly what it is. I have a crazy dream, which is to do Peking to Paris. In okay. Maybe oh, wow. maybe not that Model T. Sure. Because okay. I mean, it would be destroyed. But sure. yeah. I would like to do that in a Model T. Yes, I had and, a friend um, that uh, did that, and his uh, his car I think lasted uh, the first three days, and then had it was uh, destroyed. And what then, car was that? I think it was a uh, it was a Bentley that he tried to put across there. Was it an old like a WL pre-war Bentley? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's painful. It was. It was. But he vanished across the line at the end by hook or by crook. Which is the important thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's incredible. Um, so I guess what you know, being such an enthusiast for pre-war stuff and and you know operating it at kind of a certain area in the market with, with per saying, like, what would you recommend as somebody if, if there was a younger person who had maybe not just sold an app, you know, mm. and didn't quite have like per saying money? Like what, what would uh, you think would be a good place to start for somebody that wants to get into pre-war cars? Well, um, the good news is there are pre-war cars that are still cheap. Mm -hmm. Um, model A's, model T's, a lot of different horseless carriages. Um, if if you're interested in speed, I mean, look, I have a 1915 Model T that's a, a period modified race car, mm -hmm. and that thing will fly. And for under like 30 grand, somebody could get a Model T and basically restore it with all the period modifications on it like oh, that. Wow. Um, I think getting involved with groups, uh, I'll, I'll tell you one suggestion I would actually have is 
getting involved with the Horseless Carriage Club, which may sound boring to somebody that's young and likes pre-war cars, but the people in the Horseless Carriage Club encompass all kinds of pre-war cars. Sure. A number of them are very impressive. And it is the most warm, welcoming group of people in the car world. And when you think about cars that are, you know, high dollar cars and, and fancy cars a lot of the time, you think of, you know, the whole Pebble Beach mentality and all that. And, and you know, they're not exactly welcoming to newcomers, especially if you're young mm-hmm. and penniless. But um, the Horses Carriage Club, through their events, just through their way of life as people, are genuine enthusiasts. And I think for somebody who's new to all this and wants to get into it, that's actually a, a great place to make friends and have the opportunity to, to get up close and personal with a lot of these older cars. Fantastic. Well, that's I think really that's cool. a good idea for both you and I, Kyle, since we are both penniless. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's what it is. We're, you know, you work with an automotive museum, you're surrounded by all these beautiful cars or, you know, and it's just the, uh, was it the, uh, the, the shoemaker's children have no shoes kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Like we, uh, yeah, someday, maybe someday. But I uh, like the Peterson Museum because you get to come and see all these beautiful cars they have in here. It's true. Yeah. You get get up close to that that King George omnibus uh that that thing, you know. I guess they I found out they don't open the uh the passenger compartment ever on that because they're afraid that if they do it'll crumble or something. Oh really? Yeah, I I, I had no idea. And, well, that car has original paint, original yeah. upholstery. Yeah, and that's why they're they're just terrified like if they if they open the door like yeah. you know, a light breeze will waft through the the vault and then it'll just you know, take it out. Us. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, and, and I, I apologize listeners. Uh, apparently they're building the museum around us, uh, now and, and we can hear, <laughs> can hear all that going on. Uh, but anyway, I, I guess I, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to drive all the way up here from orange County and, and, and sit down with James and I and, and, and talk old cars. It's been really fantastic. Well, my pleasure. And yeah. hope we can do it uh, in the company of an old car next time. Maybe, Definitely. maybe the Bugatti. Yeah, I, I mean, think that sounds like a great idea. Squeezing us all three of us in there. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> for the, and doing the radio and the mics be perfect. Mm-hmm. Loads well, of room. Be, it'll be great. It'll, it'll really like, you know, kind of uh, be the, the, the icing on the cake for that. Like, you know, the fantasy of becoming the, the per se test driver in like white overalls and, and a, you know, a, a driver cap. Flat cap. Some, some, yeah. Some, some goggles. You know. Uh, anyway, and it'll also be a better soundtrack than um, drilling and hammering. I think the, the sound of a straight eight would, would be a market improvement. Improvements much. go on at the museum. Mm-hmm. It's a testament to that. Indeed. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you again, John. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for tuning in for yet another Car Stories. Uh, keep an eye out for uh, new episodes every week. And uh, if you like us, maybe uh, throw us a like on on uh, iTunes. And make sure you tell some friends because we always love seeing those download figures. Not just from Kyle's mom, but everyone else. Yeah, I mean, she's she accounts for at least 45%. So you guys got to pick up the slack. Come on. Anyway, thank you very much and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>